Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a good week so far. So this week on the podcast, this is a food one, and I'm really excited for you to hear this. If you like ramen, well, this is probably the podcast for you. Mike Satanova, a.k.a. Ramen Lord, is a guy that I came across on the internet who is, just has this insane passion for ramen. I followed him for a couple of months and I just absolutely love what he's about. I have like seen interviews with him online and I, I on like various YouTube channels and I was like, I need to speak to him. Um, and the conversation was amazing. So without further ado, Mike Satanova, a.k.a. The Ramen Lord. Mike, how's it going, man? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. I'm sorry to uh, wake you up this early. I'm sure you're probably up usually. 10 a.m. But... I got my coffee going over here. It's <laughs> it's fine. It's how not a big deal. Happy to do it, honestly. How is it in Chicago, man? Cold and good for ramen is what it is, wow. frankly. Good job. Which is topical. Good job you're uh, you're the ramen lord, right? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, very topical. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's um, I've I came across your stuff online and instagram maybe like a few months ago and i like mm. i follow quite a few food stuff and your name just kept popping up when it came to like talking about ramen and i was like i need to i need to find out who this guy is um so before like before we kind of get going into the conversation like for anybody that doesn't know who you are can you like give us a little bit of a an introduction on who you are and what you do sure so my name is mike uh, but on the internet i go by the name ramen lord which i realize is sort of presumptuous and sort of insane but it's true <laughs> and it started as a joke. Uh, I was unemployed and depressed, so I made a Reddit account and just liked ramen. So I, made, I called myself Ramen Lord, like as a goof, like not not trying to do anything serious with it. Yeah. Uh, but in my kind of boredom, uh, I just started making ramen at home. Uh, I had been making ramen at home. I'd lived in Japan for a while and kind of missed ramen because in the U.S. at least at the time, this is like 2010 or so, ramen just did not exist as it does now it just did not exist so yeah. for me to go from eating it all the time to never eating it i just kind of had to make it and 
I sucked at it for like a solid six years. Pretty terrible at it. Like <laughs> my friends will tell you that it was fine, but it was pretty brutally bad. Yeah. Uh, and just throughout the course of making, it, I started sharing these things on Reddit, uh, on the internet, and people started finding that it was pretty cool. And I guess it just kind of grew organically. Like Serious Eats talked to me about it after a while. Chicago Tribune talked to me about it after a while. And then I made an Instagram account and it just kind of kept growing and growing. And now it is what it is. But it always started from the same thing, which is like, I just wanted to make ramen and eat tasty ramen. And like, I didn't really care what any, I wasn't doing it for anybody else, but myself it was kind of selfish. Yeah, It was kind of motivating that people were into it, but it was I, I want, I really just want to be ramen. Like that, that's where the motivation came from. And still to this day is where the motivation comes from. Like I make what I want to eat, you know? So now it's like crazy. It's like 23 K followers or something about ramen. I don't know where that comes from, but I'm happy. It's cool. I appreciate all the support, you know? It's amazing, man. And I love that. It's just come out of a passion of just liking ramen or loving ramen i think it's loving, a little you know i think the problem is that ramen is one of those foods where like people go in yeah. right like it, there's certain foods in the world i think pizza is another one barbecue is another one i'm sure there's any food you can imagine but like there are certain genres of food where people just go in yeah. but ramen is unique in that like some of these guys who go in literally only eat ramen they don't eat anything else they just go to new shops every day eating ramen every single day so it gets a little intense. Like your, your, your echelon is like crazy high, you know? So I'm not saying I'm that level. I mean, I think about how many bowls of ramen I ate last year. It was maybe like more than one should eat in a year for sure. Okay. Do, you, do you count? I can estimate it was like maybe 120. That's pretty good going. No, you hear some of these, like you, these crazy ramen heads, like uh, my friend Abram, from, he goes by the name Ramen Beast on okay. Instagram. If you yeah. don't know who he is, you should follow him. Awesome account. I'm gonna follow him now. He eats he like he ate like 400 something bowls last year. Jesus Christ! So that's like that's like at least a bowl every day, often several bowls a day. Is right? He, is he overweight? No, he, he's in great shape. He looks great. Ramen Beast. My other friend Brian, Ramen Adventures. He probably ate like 300 bowls last year. Also, real thin dude, not overweight, <laughs> killing it. What is that like? Because I've spent a bit of I've spent a bit of time in Japan, and you very rarely see overweight Japanese people. Well, I think part of it's the portion size of bowl ramen in Japan. Like yeah. it's been a little transposed as you go abroad and look at some of the sizes. So, like even the quantity of soup is less in Japan. In Japan, yeah. it's like three hundred mil. In America, it's three fifty. The amount of meat you get on a on a bowl, like. Do people eat more than a bowl of ramen in Japan? No, you have the bowl and you leave. In yeah. America, it's like you get appetizers and cocktails and dessert. So it's like suddenly you've just consumed twice <laughs> the amount of calories, right? Even though this 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 food is really heavy, it's like you had everything else with it too. Yeah. So I think like in in Japan, like yes, ramen is bad for you. I want to be very clear: ramen is not good for you. Anybody who tells you that it's good for you is like trying to pull the wool over your eyes. But but. Tastes amazing. But tastes good. And in, if consumed in moderation with a normal diet, it's fine, right? Just like anything else. So, you know, these guys who are eating ramen all the time, they're not really eating much else. They're not like going ham and being like, well, now I'm going to go get this crazy breakfast with 15 bajillion other things. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go have, you know, full English breakfast with bacon and sausage and eggs and black pudding. <laughs> you know, it's like I had a bowl of ramen and that was my meal. So, so can you remember the first time you ever had ramen in Japan or was it, was it in Japan? In Japan? Yeah. I mean, 
in Japan, it's harder because I've been going to in Japan many, I've been to Japan like two or three times before I lived there. Okay. So, I, but I don't really remember the first ramen in that event. I remember staying with a host mom who made me like some packaged ramen and it's like kind of fresh noodles as yeah. opposed to instant type. But I wouldn't, I would call that memory more memorable in the sense of like having a nice meal with the family and yeah. like learning about culture, not about the ramen. First bowl of ramen I had is tough. I mean, once I lived in Sapporo, I was just hitting up whatever shops I could find just because Sapporo is known for ramen and I'm really fascinated by local food culture. And at the time I was just like, let's just dive into this. This seems like a natural go in. I was a college student at the time. I had no money. So it's like, you can get a bowl of ramen for seven, 800 yen or whatever. Yeah. Totally, cheap. totally worth it. Right. And the quality of course, as we mentioned is, is crazy. So it just was like, an obvious no-brainer uh, to just eat ramen in Sapporo when you were hungry. But I don't really, I mean, there are certain shops I went to that were fine. I think, you know, like I went to this shop, uh, 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 Tsukimi, which was a shop that came out in like around the time that we were trying to go to the moon. It literally means like moon watching. That's the name of the, okay. the shop. And it came out around the time. That, uh, and like their, their interesting like plating technique is that they put like an egg in the center, like a half cooked egg in the center. And like, yeah. you can kind of have the yolk. So it's like, Oh, the moon. <laughs> and that's generally what Kimi means in Japanese for food. Right. It's like, Oh, it's like, it has a half cooked egg on it somewhere. Basically. Yeah. Like, and so I remember like certain stores like that, or like other people would give like recommendations to your campus that were fine. Like I went to this Chinese restaurant that had ramen and it was fine, but none of those were like really like, setting me off on a blaze you know they were just like oh those are cool ramen shops yeah the yeah. ramen shop that like set me off was i'll never forget this i was chilling in basically like kind of like the student center hanging out just like in between class hanging out and one of these japanese guys who i was friends with kind of came over and he was like dude i heard you're kind of into ramen you're kind of into food you need to check out this place called sumide sumide is where you need to go mike and i was like oh, okay i was like whatever you know, I didn't really have a big expectations. I was like, some college kid telling me what to go. Fine. And I'm a dumb college kid, so I don't know anything better. <laughs> so I go, and Sumire, you know, for those who don't know, is one of the most legendary ramen shops in Sapporo. I did not know this at the time. I didn't realize the, the importance of this restaurant to the lineage of this dish in the city, but it is incredibly important. It's arguably also one of the most famous. Like, if you go on, if you walk around in Sapporo and you ask people, you know, where's some good ramen and they're a real person from Sapporo, they might list that as one of the shops just because it's really entrenched in kind of the city. And that place blew my face off. Like it was crazy. Right. So like you're going from eating pretty dang good ramen to like something that's like, you know, renowned. Yeah. Right. And I distinctly remember being like, I've never had anything like this. I've never had a dish that was as complex or as wild or as bombastic or as heavy or as, you know, just interesting to eat. I've never had an experience like this. Okay, I'm in. I want to find out everything there is to be about this dish because if this is where it can be, it's like imagine where else it is, right? Yeah. Like what? who is doing other things besides this? And so I went on a tear. Like I think I ate maybe 100 different ramen shops in my year of living in Japan. And it definitely was spurred by Sumire because it was just like, oh, this is what this dish can be, yeah. right? What what was it that's so special about it? Like what? It's hard to explain. I mean, for one, it's a it's a it's a very distinct style. Sumire invents this style of miso. It's a miso ramen, yeah. And miso ramen is the Sapporo style. So at a high level, 
most of the shops that are renowned are doing this style. There are exceptions, but most of the shops are doing that. And Sumire is unique in that they float like a really thick layer of hot fat on top, hot lard on top, which, you know, some people say is like a Hokkaido thing because Hokkaido is cold and it traps the heat. I don't know if that's true or not, but what I do know is that it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it does stay really hot, which like you'll burn yourself, honestly, because it's okay. so hot. Like, you know, I had forgotten, like I had forgotten and I keep burning myself, right? Like I keep doing it and like keep burning myself because it's so hot. But it's just like the flavor is just intense. I mean, there's like a subtle miso flavor, but there's also like ginger and garlic. And there's like this kind of pork undertone note that seeps through everything. And the lard isn't just like white fat that you get at the grocery store. It's like they render it themselves. So it's got like this deep kind of roasted pork flavor to it. And the noodles are made by... Uh, this really famous noodle manufacturer. So they're like dense and chewy and so intense. And it's just like, it's like, and the colors are beautiful. And it's just like, it just all kind of amalgamates into this like intense, but very well executed bowl of ramen, right? That bowl of ramen is not for everybody. I think that, you know, it's, it's definitely like a time capsule in a way. It's capturing a certain element of how ramen used to be. Yeah, Ramen was really meant to be really rich and unctuous and kind of over the top. Now the more modern bowls are not doing it this heavily, but to me it's like, you just don't even need anything like that in America. Like it doesn't exist. So it's just like, you kind of have your face blown off and you're just like, I got, I, I couldn't help it. I had to like dive in after eating that bowl. Have you like recreated that, that, that bowl? It's hard because Sunye is one of the few restaurants that like totally separates the kitchen from the rest of the, the restaurant. Like they have dividers at all the restaurants between and a lot of ramen shops, for those who don't know, you're pretty much looking into the kitchen when you sit down. It's yeah. like maybe a small bar in Japan looking right into the kitchen. So you can get a lot of clues about how things are made. You'll miss out on certain things like the seasoning elements, like the tare, as we call it, the sauce that kind of seasons the ramen and gives it its flavor in a lot of ways. You'll miss out on that, but you can retroactively design that if you have a good enough palate. The complex thing is like, seeing the assembly in Sapporo, the assembly is really kind of part of the dish. It's not like most ramen shops where there's a specific regimented order that almost all shops follow, which is you put kind of a seasoned oil at the bottom or a tare at the bottom, you put those seasoning elements at the bottom, then you put the soup, then you put the noodles, then you put the toppings, right? Kind of like layers it all up and you just know that's the process. So you just have to figure out the components. Miso ramen in Sapporo is distinctly different uh, in its assembly. And the main way that's different is that it uses a wok, which almost nowhere else uses in Japan. Okay. So the, the wok is used to like typically saute vegetables yeah. uh, in, in lard, a lot of fat, a lot of fat. <laughs> I was watching a video the other day and it was like a quarter cup of fat, like, like <laughs> 150 mil of fat, like some egregious amount of fat, like just a crazy amount of fat. Uh, vegetables, typically bean sprouts, sometimes cabbage, sometimes carrot kayaki uses like carrot and stuff there's certain everybody changes it up but yeah. vegetables in a wok then you deglaze with a light soup because again there's so much fat you don't really want like a really rich soup most of the time yeah uh so like a lighter kind of clearer soup and then something happens with the miso the miso seasoning the miso tare and every shop kind of varies in how they treat it sumine and junan because the the walls are up you don't get to see you don't get to see how they're treating the miso tare 
So are they cooking it? Is it, does it go in raw? Does it go in the bottom of the bowl? Does it go in with the soup? Does it like, where does it happen? What's, what's the magic here? You don't know. And it's funny because 10 years ago, I was like, what's your secret? And they were like, we can't tell you. Like, <laughs> we're not telling you anything. Like, yeah. it, unlike many of the other shops, that I, I eventually in Sapporo was like talking to cooks, like doing interviews with people, like just trying to learn more. Uh, like hour long sessions where I would sit down with these chefs and just ask them questions. Oh, about wow. Stuff. I bet that was and amazing. It was awesome. But for Sumire or for Junren, which that, that, that for Sumire, they would not tell me anything. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. They were like, go away. Right. Like <laughs> we, we don't want to tell you anything. So, you know, it's hard to replicate when you can't figure out that like really kind of core elemental component. But I think the main thing is like your miso blend is really important the uh, the way you treat the miso is really important too. And as I started making ramen at home, I started like not wanting to make that as much because it's so intense. Yeah. So my style has definitely deviated from that style since for sure. That's kind of wild if you think about it, how one bowl of ramen completely made you go in on the whole ramen experience. Yeah, it's, I mean... I've always been into food, right? Like I love, I love all sorts of food. I think that a lot of people assume that I just love ramen, but dude, I'm, I'm all about any type of food. If I go somewhere and I'm really about local food, I want to know what people are actually eating in the city. And I felt like the real, probably the real reason Sumire was so revolutionary or revelatory for me wasn't just because it was delicious, but was because I knew that this is a place that people who lived here and people who identified as people from Sapporo liked, right? Like it wasn't just one that I was finding on my own, like in around, it was like, this is a recommendation from somebody. The place was packed. It's full of people. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, you know, in further research, I realized like, this is an important place. It has meaning to the city. Like, okay, there's all of this kind of cultural context surrounding this, this dish, you know, and I find that stuff really fascinating. Sometimes that stuff even is more important to me than the actual quality of the food. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Do you, do you find like going to Japan, I find the culture over there is just something completely different to American or English or anything like that. Totally. Like what is totally. it like food? Food is a huge part in Westerners life. Right. But I feel like food in Japan is something different. Um, I'm not too sure what, but a lot of their like, like the quality of food over there, you can go to a seven 11, eat an amazing dish from, from their like, yeah, I know. From their you fridge. An egg salad sandwich. And it's like, this thing is better than any egg salad sandwich I've ever made. Exactly. At my house, you know, <laughs> what is that about? What's the, it's like the perfection, isn't it? They're just, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not a cultural expert on Japan and I'm not Japanese. So it's hard for me to identify, that has always been a challenge for me as an gaijin, you know, as an outsider, yeah. as a non-Japanese person. That's often why I found it so fascinating, but I digress. The challenge is just that I think Japan really respects quality. Like quality is a cornerstone of the Japanese culture. Yeah. It's, it's an important identification to what makes something good. And similarly, Japan really doesn't like the idea of well-roundedness. And I'm speaking in generalities. I want to be very clear. These are generalizations about a culture, and culture is dynamic and complex and whatever. But generally speaking, quality and uh, focus are really considered virtues in Japanese society. You know, there's a saying, 
you know, it's like, you know, the jack of all trades, master of none type thing. That's really true in Japan. They don't want you, they, people want to be hyper-focused in terms of the mentality. So much so that there are terms like shokunin to describe people who become, you know, uh, specific individuals in their craft, yeah. really dedicated individuals in their craft. That is seen as like a very good thing, not a very bad thing to be very hyper-focused. So because of this kind of cultural context, you have really high quality food and lots of people wanting to execute on really high quality food. Similarly, the collectivist nature of society in Japan kind of prevents a lot of like, you know, stepping, you know, kind of being bad to customers. You can't like be this, this jerk. If you are, you get like huge document documentaries about you basically. So like <laughs> the inventor of EAK style ramen, everyone has talked about how much of an asshole he is basically. I was going like, to say, I watched customers. something, the other, I watched something the other day on him. Um, yeah. That he was just like the worst of customers. You know, there's a lot of American chefs who are the exact same way and they are not getting written up though. Yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like this is like an exception to the rule. Yeah. This his his intensity of yelling at people. And it's not to say that chefs aren't mean in Japan or anywhere. They are, but his level, which in my opinion was bad, but I've seen just as terrible in the US and it's not been talked about. Yeah. It's like indicative of just the way that this kind of neutral understanding of the harmonious nature of the customer and the chef needs to be maintained. And so when it's not maintained, it becomes very bizarre. And that maintenance as a result resire, requires like increasing levels of quality and execution, yeah. right? So it's that's my guess. I, I don't know. But there's no doubt that Japan is one of the best food countries in the world. I mean, it's, 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 certainly, it's not only yeah. the best food, it's like the best fashion. It's, it's just the culture is just well, something I don't know. unbelievable. I'm not familiar enough with the fashion. But yeah, I mean, Japan executes things at a high quality. Yeah. Like that's a that is a virtue for them. Yeah, and does. you look at products made from Japan, that's what you're going to, that's like stereotypically what you expect. You don't yeah. expect a shoddily made thing in Japan. You expect a high quality made thing in Japan. Yeah, you're right. You're right there. Um, so Chicago and ramen. Mm -hmm. What about it? Is it good? <laughs> I would say fine. I would say, you know, we lag the coastal cities in the United States. Yeah. And we probably lag, I would say we probably lag the UK to a certain degree too, probably. That would be my guess. I mean, there are a handful of good shops here, but it's been a long time. You would think that there would be more. And I think part of it's just because we don't have a sizable Japanese population to yeah. sustain really those flavors. So we often have, um, and I realize that there's some irony in this, but I realize there's some irony in me saying that as a white guy talking about this, but... <laughs> I think you often have like American interpretation of the dish totally. instead of Japanese interpretation of the dish. And so that results in some nuanced differences between the two that I personally don't prefer. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like portion size and toppings. Like people putting fried chicken on uh, ramen. That's the worst. Putting like, or like dousing in chili oil. And it's like, I like chili oil, but like it's not balanced anymore. It's meant to like appease like this kind of American sensibility of aggression and like, roughness and just lacking refinement and you know a lack of understanding of individual ingredients and more about the synergy of a lot of ingredients to make something yeah these are kind of antithetical to the styles of ramen i like which are more harmonious and more kind of thoughtful and more composed 
right? So you tend to see that in a lot of these American ramen shops. The second thing you see is a lot of these Japanese companies knowing that there's uh, you know opportunity here have infiltrated the Chicago market by selling pre-made stuff. So like pre-made chashi, pre-made soups, pre-made yeah. oils even, pre-made anything. Anything you can put into a bowl of ramen, some manufacturer in Japan is making it and they'll sell it to you. And it will probably be okay because again, Japanese stuff is made at pretty good quality. <laughs> so, so just that's the problem is like, you can buy a bowl of ramen for 10 bucks in the U S and it's like they, the chef didn't make a single thing in the bowl, but it's not terrible. It's just like, it's not really like a chef. It's just like some guy put taking some guy taking a pouch and putting it into a pot and then taking another pouch and putting it into a a six pan and like serving you it and charging you uh, arm and a leg for it. Yeah. And then charging you $10 for it when it costs them like two bucks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Maybe even less, you know? So, if you were to go anywhere in the U.S. for ramen, where would it be and what shop would it be? That's really tough. I mean, I think the interesting thing about ramen is every city kind of has an exceptional place or yeah. a pretty awesome place. So like in New York City, which I think probably has the best confluence of ramen shops in the United States. Definitely. You know, you've got like uh, Ishida, awesome ramen shop. World, like definitely world-class ramen shop. Yeah. Like, could compete with Japanese ramen shops, no problem. And they do like a like a lot of chintan soups. Uh, you know, in LA, you're starting to see like the Sujita group, they do really awesome ramen. So like they do a skimen that's got like dried fish in it. It's delicious. Genuinely a delicious bowl of ramen. I've never I've never been a huge fan of fishy ramen. I'm not a huge really? fan of it's fish. It's getting it's becoming more and more popular. That's yeah. like one of the big trends in Japan. There's two waves. The first is like the tonkotsu fish one which is like super rich pork soup lots of fat lots of connective tissue broken down into gelatin bubbly and thick and viscous and it's got tons of fish in it and that's definitely intense the most popular ramen shop tomita in tokyo is doing that style of dipping noodle the other is like this newer well not newer but like emerging in popularity like last year i think they got their own section in some of these magazines. It's like this Niboshi ramen, so this sardine ramen. So again, fish is becoming a bigger thing in Japan. Yeah. Um, not here. <laughs> it's hard I to can't, find here. I can't there. imagine it being ever big in America. Yeah. I mean, it's like a niche, right? You know, and maybe you can fill your niche. That's, I think, another thing about these Japanese ramen shops is because they're small, they often are like, we're niche, right? Like, we yeah. do a Niboshi ramen. Not everyone's going to want Niboshi ramen, mm. but the people who do will love it, and that's great. And I think in America, foundationally, we want our, our restaurants to appease a lot of different people, and totally. so that kind of makes it difficult to get your specialization and hyper-focus, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's, it's a business at the end of the day, isn't it? True, unfortunately. Yeah, still got to make money. And especially in America where if you're in New York or in Chicago, you have to have customers at the end of the day. Right. How is the ramen in the UK, though? It's Honestly, I spend most of my life in America. Um, okay. So I live in Detroit. Where have you lived in America? I live in Detroit. Um, okay. How's the ramen in Detroit? There's a couple of places. Um there's one place that is very Americanized that does like fried chicken and puts cheese in their ramen. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of yeah. people like it and, and big it up. And I'm not a fan of it at all. Um, it's, it's pretty terrible. 
uh, Ema, Ema Detroit. They have a couple of shops, and they do like they do ramen, but then it's more like a udon, udon mm. kind of noodles God, that, that they do. Like pretty thick. Yeah, uh, which is really good. They do like this amazing like curry udon, which is great. Um, and then there's another one that I can't remember, which is which is like. It's pretty good. It's not like, wow, this is unreal. But Ema, Ema is a very nice restaurant to like cool. eat at. Yeah, it's tough. It's like the business model is a little antithetical, yeah. antithetical, right? You, uh, you know, you, what is ramen in Japan? Does it translate to the way that Americans yeah. or foreigners eat? Rarely. It's Honestly. very different. It's it's very like even in the UK, like there's some, there's a couple I don't know the names in London, but I've been to a couple of places in London. And they were pretty good. Um, where I live near Bristol is barely there's nothing. You you get a really? ramen shop pop up and it's pretty terrible. It's like yeah. I'd rather just make a home and why? So why do you think that? Like, let's say, you know, I, I wonder about this a lot just because like. Okay, the eating experience has to differ. Yeah. You're gonna have somebody sit. You're gonna expect that somebody's gonna order a bowl of ramen and chill with it for 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like that's pretty typical. Yeah. In the shops and in the U.S., that's very common. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the ramen has to be bad. It just means that like you probably have to charge more yeah. or like change the service model. But you can still make really good ramen. Of so what do you think it is? And I have my opinions, but I'm curious about yours. What do you think it is? That, that like is preventing it from getting to that level. These are not no slouch cities. We have good food scenes, right? So we'll, what about it is like ramen is not there yet. I think ramen in, for me in the UK and, and America is not, it's, I don't think people really respect the full craft of what it takes to make ramen. 100% agree with you. And I think, I did some work in a like I'm not I'm not a chef at all. Like, I love to cook and I I love to I'm learn. Not, and dude, stuff I'm like not that. a chef either. Trust me, it's fine. <laughs> so I like I went and spent some time uh, with a, a chef. He's not Michelin star, but he's he could be if he really wanted to be. And mm-hmm. we were talking about ramen, and he 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 owns like a hotel in like the middle of nowhere in the UK. It's beautiful on on the on the uh, coastline. And he has like eight people sit down every night just for dinner. It's like very small, very low key. And I was like, would you ever do a ramen? Um, Because we both love like Japanese culture and Japanese food. And he's like, honestly, like the people that we would get wouldn't understand that ramen's an expensive dish, as in how long it takes. They wouldn't understand that it takes 72 hours to make this broth, if you know what I mean. And yeah. all they would see is a bowl of noodles, a bit of meat, some seaweed and crack on, if you know what I mean. And I mm-hmm. think that's just, it's not, we, it's not something that we've had in our culture for long enough for us to understand the process of it. Yeah, like what's your proxy, right? What's your proxy for what ramen is? It's unfortunately either instant noodles, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that you're like 50 cents who cares or it's like chicken noodle or some other noodle soup which is always cheap right because it came from a can it's like so why would you spend 15 20 dollars on this bowl of noodles it's like it's just noodle soup i hear that a lot it's just noodle soup and i think that's part of it there's a culture of like people not understanding it i think 
the bigger challenge to me is just that I don't think chefs understand it either. Right. Like Tired. I think you either. And so it's really hard to make a good roll around without understanding it. You know, like it's similar to sushi. I think in a lot of ways, like anybody can put together a tuna roll, but like, that's not the, you know, most of the stuff that's coming out of the U S that's sushi. That's like world-class takes like a lot of focus and yeah. takes like a lot of dedication to that craft and takes a lot of time and commitment. And it's not just like somebody making a California roll, you know, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with a California roll, but it's different. It's not like, it's not like the sushi that it's a different type of sushi. Yeah. My thought is that you can have kind of your American junky ramen and also have refined ramen together. But the problem is just there's not very many chefs who are as interested in that stuff. So I they mean. don't make it. There's not, they'd rather, and given how much time it takes, they'd rather make something else. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it comes you back know. to that business side of things as well, is that you can make so much more money just by putting a steak totally. on there. Like just open a steakhouse and you can make triple yeah. the amount of money. Right. It's true. It's like, you know, okay, if I find a little shack that I could open a ramen shop in, yeah. I can either sell a bowl of ramen for 15 bucks and get called like a hack for selling way too expensive ramen, or I can sell fried chicken to go and make a killing selling yeah. it for eight to $10 a portion, you know, and just having people cycle out and never having anybody sit down and wait, yeah. you know, like, exactly. it's like the business element of it does make it complicated. So it's, it's tough, you know? Yeah, I think I think it's also because it's so young in the culture here. It's like you said, is like in the UK, our Asian population is minuscule. Like we have yeah. a lot more Jamaican food and Indian food is like huge here, which I absolutely yeah. love. I'm like Indian's my favorite favorite cuisine. Yeah. Um, and you don't really get that in America. Like you have more of an Asian population than than an Indian population, or let's say like a, a traditional Jamaican. Um, yeah. I mean, it depends on the city. Of course. Chicago yeah. is unique in that our, you know, we have a really small Japanese population in the yeah. immediate city. We have a pretty sizable Vietnamese population. So there's some good pho. Yeah. But it always depends. It's just like, yeah, I think your the point is like the people from that culture drive a lot of the yeah. uh the quality and the expectations of what that food should be in that area. And if you don't have those people from that culture, it gets appropriated, it gets manipulated, it gets updated, it gets revised. Yeah. So, you know, the biggest ramen shops in Chicago are all like these non-Japanese people who saw a money opportunity and totally. made money on it. Not people who are like, I love ramen and I want to make a ramen shop. Yeah. And in Japan, the only people making ramen are people who love ramen and yeah. want to make ramen, right? It's that passion thing. I've, I've actually, you're not going to make any money. No. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they must do, surely. In Japan, it, I mean, it's so competitive, man. Yeah, like, true. Look, Tokyo has 10,000 ramen shops. It's like, I would say your turnover is like 10 to 15% every year of just closing, yeah. closing, closing, closing. So we're talking 1,000 ramen shops close a year. Damn. Somebody was saying like 100 ramen shops a day close or something. I don't know, some egregious, crazy number of ramen shops opening and closing in Tokyo. So... The, the turnover rate's high because the competition is fierce. I didn't you know, know if that. If you do really well, you'll kill it. But most people will struggle. That's amazing. I don't know the actual statistics, so please don't quote me <laughs> on that. But the turnover rate's high. Like, it's really brutal. I was looking at a book 
that I bought like 10 years ago about like Sapporo ramen shops and just like looking at like, oh, these are all the ones I went to in a solid 90% of them had closed. Just like they were all closed. All the ones that I had gone to that I was like, oh, this one was really good. Like, I remember this one. It's like, or I wanted to go to this one. Maybe I'll go next time. It's like all closed. That's mad. Closed. I didn't know that. I didn't, I really did. I didn't expect well, that. Well, it's so competitive, you know, yeah. it's like, and I, it's really easy to open a restaurant in Japan compared okay. to the U.S. Like in the U.S., you got to get all these permits, you got to get all these inspections, you got to get all this specialized equipment. You got to get a special hood that costs like $200,000, $300,000, whatever. It's like you're, it costs a lot to get built. Yeah. But so that means that not everyone is going in. It's still relatively lower uh, impact to get in than other businesses, but it's not nothing. Yeah. In Japan, it's like, if you find a dinky ramen shop, you could open next week. Like you can barely have to do anything. Oh, right? really? Quick, I didn't know that. Paint job. Yeah. It's like the expectation, the, the like inspections are way more lax. The, the, the rent is way lower in general, ironically. And it's more like a chunk price situation where the spaces are a lot smaller. So you're just spending less. Yeah, so yeah. you see these ramen shops close and open all the time, just close and open all the time. They're that's, always changing. That's interesting. Cause I would have thought it would be like a case of, these ramen shops have been here for like 20 years and they're all so But there good. are those. There are yeah. those too, you know, or even longer, you know. Some of them, be, once you become like an institution, yeah. it's like, yeah, you're going to make some money. But a lot of these guys, the way they make money is not through the shop. It's through the brand and then selling that through different like revenue sources. So like yeah. maybe you have an instant noodle deal with Nishin. So that's like you just make killing on licensing, right? Like 6%, it's like you're just raking in cash, yeah. right? So like Sumide has a licensing deal with 7-Eleven to sell instant noodle cups. So Sumide uh, okay. must be making a killing. Like they're just sitting back collecting dollars, right? Like they don't even have to do anything. Nishin makes the product, distributes it. They just collect the, they just collect the money. That's like the way to do it. Have you ever tried to make um, like your own you instant noodle? Sorry. That was... Instant noodle? Yeah. Have you tried? No, because it's it's like a different it's a different food, really. At yeah. a high level, it's pretty different. You know, the noodle is either dried but mostly fried to okay. remove moisture. So you have to change the composition of the noodle to accommodate that, right? It has to be able to stand up to frying without tasting fried. It has to be able to like sit in a soup and not get mad soggy immediately. Right. Yeah. And then, dude, how do you make the soup? Like, it's like a powder. It's like a paste. <laughs> what is that? I don't know. A lot of MSG probably. That's why know. it tastes so good. <laughs> I love it. MSG is the bomb. It I is. love MSG. It's, MSG is this like hated thing in Western culture. Um, every So I've, I've done a lot of these pop-ups in the US and every time I'm like, I'll put a little MSG in there. And then like the chef tries it and they're like, okay, I'm on the MSG train now. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't before, but I am now. It's amazing. Like, your your game goes up. It really yeah. does. It, like it really elevates your cooking. It is. It's, it's, it's amazing. I just saw on your Instagram, you've just recently done a pop-up. Um, mm-hmm. How How is that? Like, how does it work? The whole kind of pop-up thing. With COVID? It's very different. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's so weird, man. It's like, so... Uh, COVID pop-ups are definitely different than normal ones in that we can't serve people sitting down. We have to make kits basically that people will take home and cook. So, you know, I get asked all the time, can you ship this? Would you ship a kit? And it's like, man, do you know how it's like the kits are so hard to make on their own, let alone trying to figure out how to ship it internationally or nationally. (laughs) The way that you make the kit is 
every component gets a container. So it's like, let's say we're making a miso ramen. What does a miso ramen come with? It's got soup. It's got a tare. It's got an oil. It's got chashu. It's got some bean sprouts. And it's got an egg. So there's six things, right? Each one of those needs its own container. So in addition to making the whole components, you then have to individually, one by one, put it in a container. And that takes hours, like a solid two to three hours of just work of just containerizing things. There's no value add here. There's no cooking here. There's no, it's just sorting. You're just yeah. like a, you're a plant that's you're, just sorting stuff. You're admin. So you do all that. Then you got to take all those things, assemble them into a kit and put that in a container. So there's another step that's included <laughs> after. So we spend like five to six hours and maybe, maybe anywhere from three to six hours, actually just containerizing stuff yeah. for kids. It's a lot of work just to get the kit into a position to sell it. And what and kitchen are you doing this in? What kitchen are you doing this in? So right now I've been working with this restaurant called Flatten Point. They're awesome. It's got a bib gourmand. So it's not Michelin star, but price point's a little bit too low for Michelin star, but yeah. it's operating at that level where it like gets recognized by Michelin. Really okay. nice. The chef is... Uh, he's really into like using local ingredients and using really high quality ingredients. So like we use these incredible, incredible ingredients a lot in the ramen. And I really like that because I feel like often I've kind of been just using okay ingredients for ramen. This has given me the opportunity to use like heritage pig breeds or like whole hog butchery and really interesting cuts from the animal or like really local chicken that's like really delicious and really flavorful and intense and we get a good deal on it because he's buying a lot from this this farm so you know just kind of cool stuff like that we're not all local you can't like get green onions locally there's just you know it is what it is like it's (laughs) chicago it's the winter but to be able to like do stuff like that and kind of get pushed a little bit to like think about how to make this dish a little more uh, regional, a little more specific to Chicago, specific to the Midwest. I really like that. And he's never shy of like challenges. Uh, so we'll always just like push ourselves a little bit. It's like we, we've made all the noodles for all these kits, which I would never do normally, but we, we have. So, so what would you do normally? Like, we buy them from Sun. Okay. Sun Noodle, yeah. who makes delicious noodles, don't get me wrong. But there's something, one, I think awesome about the control of making your own noodle. As a chef, we're all, if you're like a really nerdy chef, you love the control. Yeah. Like you want control over every product possible, everything. And the noodle and ramen is really important. I would argue it's like the most important thing next to the soup, right? Like those are the two most important things in the dish. The toppings are really nice, don't get me wrong. But if your noodles and soup suck take it or leave it. I don't care what you put on top of it. It's not good. I right? still haven't so, nailed the noodle like properly. It's hard. It's hard. It's, man. it's so hard. So imagine us being idiots making it. <laughs> for like a hundred people. Yeah. That's a at lot. a time. We're stupid. Like we're dumb, but that's... it's cool to like work with a chef who's like, F it. Let's just do it. You know, like and no fucks given. Right. So, um, so And he's just like, and he helps with like a lot of logistics and it's just cool. Like have somebody who is like willing to help with a lot of the work. Um, So we've been doing kits with him and Flatten Point does a lot of like smoked food. So we get to like do cool smoke treatments to a lot of the the components. So like we'll smoke the chashu. We did the first pop up we did, we like smoked the soy sauce. So that was kind of cool. Like you take soy sauce and put it in a smoker basically. So does it change it much? Does it change the taste much? It adds that in like nice oaky smoked undertone to yeah. the to the dish yeah Amazing. totally it's funny because japanese is 
we think of Japanese as not having a lot of smoked food, but they actually do because a lot of the dried fish products like katsuobushi in particular are smoked yeah. heavily. It's yeah. an in- integrated part of the flavor. And it's just that dashi is so like subtle and refined, right? That it's like this very delicate smoke flavor that kind of permeates dish. Yeah. Whereas in American cooking, smoke is often bombastic and huge and yeah. really intense in your face, right? Like we think like barbecue and like ribs, like, Ooh, it's like so much smoke. I want it super smoky. Yeah. So the idea of taking that smoked element on its own is not odd in ramen. It's very common if you're using dashi elements, but it's interesting to think about how else you can play with it. Do you smoke the meat? Do you smoke the fat? Do you smoke the chashi? Like, do you smoke the toppings? Do you smoke uh, the oil? Do you smoke the tire? It's like, what? where can you integrate this element of flavor, which is not that atypical into the dish in some capacity it's cool that there's a restaurant who's just like f it we'll just do it like the chef is just down to do whatever basically right yeah, like i, I pitch him an idea he pitches me an idea we just go back and forth so i really enjoyed working with them and uh you know we just been making kits just trying to keep uh keep the ramen dream alive basically <laughs> yeah i was i was gonna think like ramen shops must have had a tough time during covid because it's gotta have been so brutal man i mean there's at least some chains of closed here because like candidly kits are fine i actually really like the kits because the noodles are raw so you have to cook yeah. the noodles and with that the quality is almost identical to if you got it in a shop right mm-hmm. the big challenge of takeout ramen is like if you're pre-cooking the noodles they're going to be kind of gross by the time you eat yeah. them and there's really no way about that there's not like a solution and the soup's going to be cold and it's like it just doesn't transport well it's really meant to be eaten when it's finished so making a kit it is finished at your house so you're good to go but takeout ramen is not good it's just like not that good it's terrible and so you've got two sides here you could do kits which i think a lot of people don't want they just want to eat ramen and be done and then you've got takeout ramen which a lot of people don't want because it's not very good it doesn't taste very good it yeah. doesn't transport well so for both reasons Ramen shops got hit hard for sure, especially with no indoor dining. It's real tough, real tough. I think it also takes the whole fund of ramen away. Yeah. Let's be honest. Like the whole, for me, the whole point of ramen is going with just by yourself or just you and a couple of mates and just getting a bowl of ramen and sweating, eating some ramen when it's cold outside and just enjoying it. Dude, yes, totally. And all that is missing. I that, I think I kind of mention this a lot. Like I, I hit the nostalgia a little too hard sometimes on the IG <laughs> when I post. But like the thing I miss the most since going into COVID is being able to serve people a ramen exactly how I want it to be, right? It's at the right temperature. It's presented correctly. The noodles yeah. are cooked perfectly. It's got the right ratio of everything. Everything is balanced and in the image of how I want it to be. You know, when you're doing a real pop-up, in a restaurant, you have the control element in your favor. You're always like looking at it and seeing how this is yours. Now you're going to do it. Yeah. In the kits, you know, you get control up until you hand it to the customer and then the customer gets to decide what they want to do with it. And, you know, I'm not saying my customers are bad cooks or anything. <laughs> Certainly the instructions are clear, but you know, they're overcooking the noodles. You know, they're it's their decision. It's their decision. They get to do what they want. So like yeah. sometimes somebody adds a spicy paste to it or sometimes somebody plates it in a way that I wouldn't plate it. And yeah. it's like, you know, I'm a control freak and I would, you know, there's a, a vision I have for it and I want to express that vision in a certain way. So you just can't do that with a kit. And 
it's you know it doesn't hit the same i guess is what i would say yeah like yeah. there's a certain feeling as a person who, when you're in hospitality or you love cooking for people of like presenting a dish to someone right giving a dish to someone and saying this is my kind of expression of this food and you just don't get that with a kit it just doesn't happen no totally what's it like when so you, like a lot of sh- you know what's it like when you do oh, these pop-ups um before covid like yeah you're, you're not dependent like you say you're not a chef but like you're obviously on the line and you're still cooking yeah on the line yeah on the line always what, on the line what's that like so well ramen is an interesting dish in that so much of it is prep right like yeah. it's really designed to be executed you know the, the term in the u.s i don't know what it is in the uk is pickup time so that's like from the time you get the order to the time you've finished it and it's ready to be served to the customer the pickup time for ramen is supposed to be like five minutes right okay. like you should be getting this thing out quickly right so to do that everything is made in advance no one is like cooking a soup to order or like making a tire to order right yeah. like the components are done you're just putting them in the bowl you're cooking the noodles to order and then it's assembled and it's out so it's quick and as a result, you get a lot of time to prep. You've got to really think about your prep schedule. Like, mm-hmm. when am I going to get this stuff done on time so that I'm not in the weeds till midnight making soup or whatever, right? Yeah, think about your prep that way. Yeah. But the actual, like, service time is, is relatively straightforward. It's like, we always try and make sure that it's simple for us. So in past pop-ups, I would never do more than three different bowls. I don't want to have to, like, think about four or five different types of ramen to have yeah. to make at the same time. I try to make sure that we have different stations that help with the assembly of the ramen. And we try to make sure that the menu is not too complicated so we can really focus on getting the ramen out in that five-minute interval, right? So, like, you sit down. Uh, we pre-sell all the the seats for ramen pop-ups because okay. – and I'm not trying to brag. This is going to sound, like, present like insane, but I'll just say it. If I sell uh, – if I go and say, we're going to do a pop-up, I have 200 tickets, 200 bowls to sell – if I tell people in advance, we'll sell out in like 20 seconds. Damn. Like it just goes. That's it's just amazing. fast. It's fast, bro. It's real fast. Is, is that or, just for you over the years of just building a following of ramen? Yeah, just like ramen heads in Chicago knowing that they want it's some crazy good. stuff. And I think there's a scarcity element to it yeah. too that people like. So but for both of those reasons, we sell quick. I mean, the last kits we did sold 100 kits. I didn't tell anyone they were going to go on sale until they were on sale. So there's no like pre-announcement, no like tickets are going to drop here. It was like 7 p.m. on a Thursday. I was like, tickets are available, go. By 8 o'clock, they were gone. Damn. I didn't have to tell anybody. Yeah, it's like these things go. Like, So we have to pre-sell because if I just tried to open and like try and cater to everybody, we have, we've done this before. It's like you got like a line of like 50, 60 people yeah. just waiting to get ramen. It's not really a good – like not a good – thing for anybody to wait in line at like not in chicago anyway yeah we did this we did this (laughs) once where it was only walk-in and like at nine in the morning there was like a line of like 50 people that's like japanese style though yeah yeah it's crazy that is proper so that's what what we ended up doing is like selling to them and being like come back at your time right like come back at noon and then you can get your bowl ramen yeah like that's silly mad silly (laughs) so stupid so we just pre-sell everything now so that you just know that you've gotten your bowl around. You don't have to stress out about it. You can come in. You don't have to pay anything. You can kind of hang out. It's yours to enjoy it however you'd like. You bought it already. Yeah. It's a better experience for everybody overall. Totally. 
Um, so we pre-sell, which also helps with managing inventory, right? Mm-hmm. So I know exactly how much of each dish I need to make. I don't have to worry about who's going to order what, what are my, you know, they say in the business pars, like what's the amount of an ingredient I need to have? I know exactly what it is because I have my inventory bought already, basically. Yeah. So it's easier to plan. And then service is really easy because we know when people are showing up and what they ordered. So we just have to execute. So we just make sure that we're set up in terms of our mise en place, in terms of our, our kitchen line. I typically rock the soup and the Thai because I really think that's super integral. And the noodles, you know, the noodles would be the other station I might mess with. I don't really have to worry too much about toppings because I trust the chefs to be able to be good at plating, right? Yeah. And the things are all made. Uh, so it's it's probably the least difficult component of the barama making process. The soup and the Thai, I think, is the most important because if the soup isn't hot enough and it's not seasoned correctly, it's going to be a bad bowl. It's going to be gross. And the noodles I think are really important too, but you set a timer and then anybody can handle the cooking of the noodles. Right. So. Is it, is it interesting going into a kitchen where it's not a Japanese restaurant and it's just, it's normal American cooking. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's it's a different, it's a different thing. So I've done pop-ups across a number of different styles of restaurants. I would say that almost all restaurants in the U.S., regardless of genre, operate on a similar style, mm-hmm. like in terms of how they manage their yeah. restaurant and what the what the past looks like, what the kitchen is set up to look like, yeah. how people think about stations. There's kind of a, a similarity there. The difference is just like, how do we retrofit this to be able to make ramen in it, right? <laughs> so like... Most 99% of the restaurants don't have a noodle boiler, right? Yeah. Like, so how do you cook the noodles? Well, you can bake, take a big pot of water and fill it and put baskets in it to strain out noodles. But eventually you're going to have to change the water. So you got to figure out like, what's the best way to do this? Like what's the optimal way to like not interrupt service so that we can make sure this thing doesn't get super starchy and gross. So what is a, what is a, what is a noodle bath? I've never, I don't know what that is. Oh, so like if you, if you cook noodles in, portions it's helpful to have like basically a small basket that you can put into the water and it kind of holds the noodles in like their own little cooking area so they're not like swimming around a giant pot right so this is helpful if you're doing like four or five portions at a time so you keep them all separate you're not like trying to fish out and figure out oh this is one portion this is another portion so this is very common in most ramen shops because it simplifies the cooking process. Okay. Some places that are really old school don't do this. They just dump all the noodles in water and then they fish out a portion or so and they plop it into the bowl, right? But the really refined places like to have a certain specific quantity of noodles. So they need these like essentially these small mesh baskets that sit in the water and okay, make yeah. sure that the noodles like stay there. Like frying, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, but it's like more like a deeper basket yeah. type thing. I would go. I would go grab one, but I feel like it's a little <laughs> strange. I yeah. So you just—it's just about like the challenge. I think of any ramen pop-up is like, how do we make sure the kitchen is capable of handling the style of service that needs to happen? Yeah. It's got to be really fast. It's got to be on, and you got to be able to do things like cook noodles, you know, independently, get the soups ready, get everything assembled quickly, mm. while maintaining the integrity of the dish and getting it to a customer quickly. Yeah. That's like the component, but. I was playing this with the chef. So we, we see, we've never had like a dud as far as I can tell. I've yeah. never had a bad experience, you know, and these chefs are always really excited about making ramen because ramen is delicious and it's a new experience for them. So, you know, they're eager to like be involved. And I really love that too. You know, would you ever open a place? 
Oh, I get asked this question so much. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's a good question. I wish, you know, it's, it's a thing I wrangle with a lot. I would love to open a ramen restaurant, but I just don't think you can make any money doing it. So yeah. you have to think about what's the business model. And until I have really good clarity on what that business model is, it just does not make sense, right? Opening a standard Japanese-style ramen restaurant with like eight to ten seats just won't make any money. Nah, you'll be broke, money. you know, you'll be broke and you'll be in debt because it's expensive to open a ramen restaurant. Yeah. And I don't want to open myself to that risk. But if we can figure out like a business model that makes sense for a ramen restaurant, then I think there's an opportunity because it's clear that I have the demand. Yeah. And I love liking, I love making ramen and serving ramen to people. Yeah. And I want ramen to be better. And yeah, I think yeah. the only way to make ramen better in the U S at this stage is to set an example of what it can be by executing at that high level and by being a figurehead in the scene, in the community saying, this is what it should be guys. Like step your game up, you know? No, I agree. I think it takes people like that to make things better in, in everything. Um, right. Ivan Rahman in New York. Yeah. What about him? Like Lich that in, in America, that's my favorite ramen shop. Um, that was great. I love him. You know, we used to have beef, I think, at one really? point. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, somebody told me that he, we had beef. But I, I love Ivan. and He's awesome. I think what I love about Ivan is that he has his own unique style of ramen, which I think is That's often missing in the U.S. That's right? what like, I love, yeah. Regardless of what you, you know, it might not be the style for you, but you can't deny that it's his style and his interpretation of the dish. And we need that in the U S yeah. like we can't have everybody making tonkotsu. Yeah. got to have people like Ivan who are like, I do a shio and this yeah. is my shio. And it's like a representation of what I love in ramen. To me, that's like extremely respectable. And, and that shio is bomb. Like I had so the, good. they were doing, they were doing kits the other day or maybe like in late last year, Sun Noodle was doing like these ship kits where you could try Ivan's shio and it was good. It was like delicious. I was like, wow, I, 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 I wish I got to go back to Ivan Ramen after this one. Like this one is real good. So, you know, I, I got nothing but good things to say about Ivan. He's a super nice guy. You know, we, we talked a couple now uh, his his ramen is a unique and interesting expression of the dish that represents him what's what's not what else is there to say that's not to love about that no i totally agree and that's why i brought him up because you kind of hit the nail on the head is you go to ramen places and it's the same it's pretty much the same menu like how many more tonkotsus do you need to eat that are like made from the same paste it's not even like they didn't make it in house they made it from a paste it's got the same noodles in it it's the same manufactured noodles the chashu is the same thing the green onions are all fucked up looking they're like super chunky and weird because nobody cares nobody pays attention it's like how many of those bowls do you need to eat before you're like i'm tired of this like i want to try something different i want to try what somebody really who really cares about ramen makes and then you go to Ivan's like, that's what that is. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's not many, there's not many shops like that in America that I find that I've come across and I could be completely wrong. I agree. Um, dude, it's time for you to open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that my ramen is that. So people ask me a lot, like, what is your style of ramen? Yeah. Right. Like, what is my style of ramen? I don't have a good answer. And ironically, when I asked Ivan this too, I don't think he had an awesome answer either. Like, cause it's hard to describe. What does it mean to have a style in ramen? I think you really just start with like what resonates with you and what you love and what you think is important. And you make ramen based on that. Yeah. 
And so what is important to me, and I'll say something, but it's it's super generic and super boring. It's like, I want the bowl to be balanced and I want it to kind of change and feel interesting over time throughout the course of its lifespan as you're eating it. And that sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, but I'll explain what I mean. Like one, I don't want this bowl to be too rich and too intense or too salty, but I don't want it to be bland or too delicate or too refined. Ramen is kind of punchy by its design. It is salty. It is meant to be intensely flavored. It's not meant to be us, you know, in my opinion, at least it's not supposed to be often that delicate. Even the shios that I've had that I really loved, Ivan Shio is a good example of this. It's, a lighter bowl, but it's still punchy. It's still yeah. got like a little bit of roughness to it. You know, it's like, there's some edge to this. It's not just like water and fish. It's like, there's more complexity and intrigue and nuance. So it's gotta be balanced while still being punchy and still being ramen. Yeah, I want it to not feel too salty, too hot, too cold. It's gotta be balanced so that you enjoy eating it. You feel the interestingness of it and the complexity of it. And the second thing that I really look for uh, in a bowl of ramen is this idea of it changing over time. And the, I didn't really realize this was something I wanted until like maybe even a couple of years ago when I was in Sapporo, I, I was visiting Sapporo and I was talking to this chef uh, who owns this ramen shop called Noodle Lab Q. And Noodle Lab Q is like one of the top ramen shops in Sapporo right now. And they're doing like this really interesting Tokyo style, what I call new wave, but it's also called like chicken and water ramen or uh, Mizudori K or Neo Shoyu or whatever. There's a lot of terms for it. Okay. Basically, it's like it's like strip everything out and just put chicken and water in the soup, but use like the craziest chicken breeds and like blend the chicken breeds and okay. think about what are the ingredients that are working together here and use like insanely high quality soy sauces and blend like five, six, seven different soy sauces. So you're building complexity through the nuance of these really high-end ingredients as opposed to like Atomita who's building complexity through a lot of different ingredients, 14, yeah. 15, 16 different ingredients, right? Different philosophies, neither of which is right or wrong, but interesting that they both exist. So I was talking to him about this dish because I love that ramen restaurant. It's like one of my favorite for sure. And he was saying like, he really thinks about how the bowl changes as you're eating it due to the temperature change and due to the level of fat on top changing and due to the, like, how does, you, you taste new things as the temperature changes, right? Yeah. So as it's warm, it tastes like one way. As it's middle, it tastes a different way. As it's cold, it tastes a different way. Yeah. I want my ramen to be the same way. So I think about that a lot. Like, what's the fat quantity on this going to be like? If it's too much, it's going to stay too hot for too long yeah. and you won't be able to taste that nuance. What are the ingredients in the tare? Do some taste more pronounced at certain temperatures than others? So like for miso ramen, I keep mine really raw because I find that as it cools down, it gets more fruity and more complex. Mm -hmm. So it's still interesting as you're eating it. It's not like a slog. Yeah. And to me, that's really important because that change over time keeps you interested in the bowl. You're like, oh, Oh, that's kind of interesting. What's that? Yeah, there's like yeah, a little yeah. bit of pepper at the bottom. Right? Yeah. There's like, you get like a little hit of that fruitiness from the meat towards the middle. And you're like, okay, that was different, you know? So I, those are like the two things I kind of aim for balance and changing and manipulation over time. They're hard. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time just messing around trying to figure it out, you know? Dude, I absolutely love the like, I love the passion that you have about ramen. It's, oh, I'm totally a nerd, bro. I absolutely love it because obviously I'm in music and I come up, I'm, I would say 
I wouldn't say I'm a music nerd. I like sitting in the studio. I, I'm, I'm definitely a studio geek, but I, that I've got friends that are just on another level of of studio geeks and music geeks, and and you don't often find them if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I, I I've got friends that are chefs and they love cooking and but you're just on another level of this like passion for something. And I well, absolutely love that. You know, I think there's one thing that I want, I tell people a lot and it's that passion is not enough. You know, like you can be really passionate about something, yeah. but be lazy or not be willing to put in the grunt work of just doing it over and over again yeah. to get good at it. I'm lucky in that I don't actually think I'm the best ramen chef far and away do not think that but i know that i will put in the stupid amount of work to get it done totally. right like i will just do the work so yeah. like i have sliced pretty much every scallion for every pop-up i've ever done <laughs> <laughs> which is dumb it's really stupid like that's a thing you should hand off to somebody yeah. but to me uh it's just like this is a control element for me that just needs to be done and i know i can accomplish it the way i want it to be accomplished so i'm going to do it right? I don't know if somebody else can do it and I don't want to have to worry about it. You have to be willing to just sometimes do the work and getting, you know, like talent is a combination of both passion, the intrigue in the dish and the grunt grit of just doing the work. So that talent, that is rare. And I think people forget about this component, the doing the work part. Like you look at like the best like of anything, these guys aren't good just because they were just like passionate and just gifted. They were good because they put in the work. They worked their asses off to get good at it, right? Like, I don't think I'm very talented, but I think that I put in the work. You know, I, I think so, I think that's the, the the major thing though in all of this situation is that you have the passion, you absolutely love it, um, and we all know those people that are ta- that are born talented that that have these amazing like the good looking dudes at school that are really good at sport, that are really yeah, intelligent right. and everything like that. And then they end up doing nothing with their lives. And because they don't ever have to, they didn't ever have to work for it. And it's right. the same for me in music is that I, I was never talented in music. I had to work to get that talent and get to where I, where I'm at right now. And it feels like it's the same for you. And, and yeah. there's something about that though, that kind of, puts you a step above a lot of people in in life because i don't know i mean i i'm not the kind of cocky guy who's gonna say that i'm so awesome or anything it's 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 not being cocky i don't think it's that and i don't think it's about an ego side of thing it's just the fact that you're willing to just put the work in you're willing to do what it takes to get to where you want it to be yeah yeah, I mean, we could get into the philosophy of why that is and, you know, like my psychosis that is involved in that, I'm sure. But I guess I'll just say, you know, I I very rarely settle. I don't like to yeah. settle for mediocrity, you know, in it, especially if things I'm executing. So for me, it was more like just a desire to just do the right, the best thing and like try and try and try and you can get demoralized by that because mm. it, you know, doing the work requires knowing that you're going to mess up, yeah. right? And not having it be perfect. I think like in cooking broadly, a lot of people with this rise of the internet have just assumed that they're just going to make something and it's going to be awesome because the recipe is good and they're yeah. done. And then that's it. 
but the reality of like really high-end cooking is that it requires trial and error and it requires knowing that your first attempts are going to be pretty terrible and like getting comfortable with the fact that you're not going to nail it the first time. Like it's going to take work and just getting used to that. And, you know, again, I made ramen that was terrible for six years. So I guess I just got used to like making shit ramen basically. (laughs) No, I totally agree. I totally agree. It takes, takes time with anything. Um, Dude, we've just done over an hour and I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. Before we before we go, how can people follow you, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. So uh, the good old plug. Love yeah. the plug. Um, I'm on Instagram as ramen underscore underscore lord. Um, that's where I post everything about my kits if people are interested and uh, if people just want to see what random stuff I'm working on, that's what I usually post there. I'm also on Reddit as ramen underscore Lord, where I post like more formal things. Uh, in general, I would say the Instagram is where you can contact me more of the time. Uh, and there's like links to like where to buy tickets. I have a free ebook out. It's 120 pages of just like how to make ramen. Anybody can access it. It's a Google doc. It's free to anybody to use. You can use it however you'd like. I know some people are printing it and binding it, which is like a little insane to me, but very flattering. You can do that if you like. It's I would, up to you. I was actually, I was looking at it early and I was like, I ha- I'm just going to have to print this out. But I do update it occasionally. Like as I make new recipes, as I learn new things, I update it. And I kind of like that because it's like this living, breathing thing that exists on the internet and just is really easy to change so anybody can access it the link is in my instagram link bio thing so feel free to check that out too but yeah just kind of making ramen right now i'm just trying to get through covid frankly (laughs) i feel you man (laughs) but more importantly the thing that i love the most about ramen is education so if anybody ever has questions or comments or wants to get into the hobby feel free to shoot me a dm i try to be responsive i try to help people out where i can always happy to chat about it with literally anybody like i do not any skill level you can be the you have never made ramen before and you're like i don't know what i'm doing or you can be like i'm a chef and this is what i think i would love to chat with you about ramen to me i think the only way we get better at making ramen is by educating one another about it and by sharing what we know so you know feel free to contact me i'm not that strange of a person i just love chatting with folks you know <laughs> i love that man um thank you so much and also when i'm in chicago we have to make some dude ramen. absolutely anytime absolutely love to. cool peace out dude keep safe right. thank you see you Take man. It easy bye bye wow what a dude that is um true dedication to to ramen and i absolutely love anybody that is willing to put that much work and time into one thing i absolutely love that hope you enjoyed it as much as i did please share it with all your friends um give us a little review make sure you hit subscribe and see you very soon keep safe people big love okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.